Welcome to episode 54 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Today's special guest is Richard Dolan, acclaimed UFO historian and author of the definitive multi-volume UFOs and the National Security State. Hey, Richard, nice to have you on the show. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jason, Richard is an interesting guest, to say the least. What's the backstory behind how we met him and how he came on the show? You know, I'm not exactly sure how I discovered uh, this, but I, I, I watched a video or two of Richard on, I don't know, YouTube or Google Video or something, and I was just really impressed with his credibility and his focus on um, official documents and official testimony. And it was just something that I had never really been, uh, I'd never seen before. And I thought it was really interesting. And I initially just sent the link to the video to a few friends of mine and said, you got to check this out. This is really, you know, crazy stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, ever since then, I've, I've watched, I think, every video that I could find of Richard on the web. And I've read a number of his essays and I'm in the process of reading one of his books. And I just thought it would be really uh, fun to talk to, to him, basically. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of questions for Richard, so uh, I'll let you get started. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, so Richard, as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're a tech show. We focus primarily on, you know, building software. We do a, we do a lot of discussions about startups and, and, and just kind of the things that are, I guess, of interest to us and, interested, and of interest to the, the people like us. And I think a lot of our listeners are you know, to some degree interested in sci-fi and science and, you know, UFOs are cool. Everybody probably watched Star Trek and Star Wars and like right. X-Files and things like that. So I think the UFOs are kind of thing that are fun to talk about a little bit, but I'm not sure how many people know a whole lot about the actual, what's really fact and what's myth. And I was kind of hoping that you could maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the study of UFOs, and then maybe get into... What is some of the most compelling evidence? I mean, what is the serious evidence that people can double-check themselves to get a sense of what is real and what is not? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start, Jason. Um, my, my own background is I've studied now the UFO phenomenon pretty seriously for about 15 years. Uh, I got into it. Uh, at the time that I got into it, it was in the mid-90s, I was working on a doctoral dissertation in history, uh, doing Cold War studies uh, here in Rochester, New York, where I live, at the University of Rochester. Uh, at that time, I had no background in UFOs at all. I had minimal to no interest, I think probably like a lot of people. Uh, the crazy thing, though, is at that time, I was really focusing on Truman's national security strategy circa 1950. Uh, and I was in a bookstore and stumbled across a book in the UFO field. It's actually very well known to a lot of us in it. It's called Above Top Secret uh, by an author named Timothy Good. The subtitle of that book was actually what grabbed my attention. And the subtitle is The Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. I'll never forget this. I watched the book. Just I was looking at it, staring at me, as, as it were, on a display. And I leafed through it. Uh, a, the first thing I thought was that it doesn't look like a bad book. It looked, seemed like it was pretty well put together. And there were a lot of documents in that book, uh, lots of passages relating to people in the U.S. national security community that I had studied myself. Um, and here was this author putting a lot of those people in the context of being interested in the UFO phenomenon. So immediately the first question that came to my mind was, well, why? Uh, why were they interested in... <clears throat> If they actually were interested, as it appeared, 
And the, the follow-up question that immediately came to me was, well, why had I never read about this in any academic history book? Even if they were mistakenly interested in UFOs, in other words, you know, if it turned out to be a whole lot of nothing, isn't that still interesting? You know, you go back 50, 60 years uh, to be a fly on the wall of some three-star general or four-star general and listen to this guy be genuinely concerned over violations of sensitive airspace by objects that aren't supposed to exist. Well, sure, how could that not be interesting, I thought. So I ended up buying the book. I went through it, and I thought, that's, that's a very good book. Uh, I ended up trolling what was then the Internet, basically the bulletin board groups on what was Usenet. Um, <clears throat> probably the best of those at the time was Alt Paranet UFO. I still remember it. Uh, what was funny about that, this is 1994, was... In addition to the flame wars, which never, ever stop in any era of human history, it's like a lot of, you suck now, you suck now. Right. There, were still, there were still people, though, who were really intelligent, who had interesting things to say uh, about this. And so I, what I discovered is that very quickly I got hooked. And what I wanted to know was not, are UFOs real? I wasn't there yet. I was in a very uh, conservative place, I guess, at that time. But what I wanted to know is simply... Was this a matter that is, was actually of historical significance to important people in our society who were charged with national security? I mean, were they interested as it appeared? And if they were, then I wanted to know why were they? And if they were, then did they ever stop being interested? And if they did, then, you know, did they ever discover what all this ruckus was about, so to speak? And if they've continued to be interested, then I wanted to know why that was so. And so um, that was basically pulling me into the rabbit hole. And I, that's 15, 16 years ago. I've, I'm still there. Um, early on in my research, I discovered that there were, in fact, a, a very large cache of documents that were released by the United States government and by a number of other governments, too, uh, in the early years, especially by the U.S. government, uh, through the Freedom of Information Act. And it's important to remember that the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, uh, really only got teeth in, in this country in the late 1970s, uh, during the presidency of Jimmy Carter. Before that, there really was no freedom of information to speak of. Uh, government agencies could claim with impunity that they had no interest in UFOs, they didn't investigate UFOs, blah, blah, blah. And no one was really able to prove them otherwise until the late 70s when researchers, this is all after Watergate, after Vietnam, it was a different country. And the, in Congress and, and the presidency of Jimmy Carter in particular promoted a liberal interpretation of freedom of information so that researchers obtained within a couple of years, not hundreds, but thousands of pages of documents from various government agencies relating to UFOs. Um, now, among those documents, there, there isn't a single one that is the definitive smoking gun proving UFOs are alien. However, there are a number, I would say maybe even a hundred, that are one cut below that describe truly just astonishing events in the skies above sensitive uh, areas of the United States, military, um, Air Force bases, Army bases, and so forth, that were subject to violations of their airspace by objects that, frankly, just should not have existed. And we know this happened. This is not a matter of debate. 
you can debate what they are. You can debate what their intentions are and who's behind them and so forth. But you can't debate that it happened because there's too many proven government documents showing something bizarre was happening over the skies of America's bases in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And guess what? Through the 70s and 80s and into our own century, this has not stopped. So that's something that I feel one can take to the bank. And I would gladly uh, share some of those documents that I personally feel are the most important. Uh, I don't want to bore people to death. Suffice to say that there's a number of them that received very obviously um, high levels of seriousness. They were subject to great seriousness by, I, I mean, some of these went to the director of the CIA. Um, and so that was what, you know, early on in my research hooked me, completely hooked me, and made me realize that there, in fact, is something very, very important to this. Um, whether it's extraterrestrials, you know, people from another planet, or um, some secret human infrastructure somehow that is responsible for this. Okay, that's cool. If someone wants to go there, I'm all for it. Uh, you know, my attitude is um, whoever is behind this, whatever's behind it, the bottom line is they're not supposed to be doing what they do. And so let's start with square one, which is at least acknowledge that they're there is this phenomenon, and then collectively as a society, we can put our best heads together and sort of figure this out. Okay, so l let's <laughs> say that let's say that I'm one of the I'm one of our listeners, and I'm a skeptic. I'm like, okay, that sounds cool and all. Um, now, I would think that you'd want to be able to spot check some of these documents, right? Let's say that I'm interested in checking this out. I'm yeah, skeptical, right. But I'm like, all right, uh, you say there's government documents. Where are they? How can I look at them? I mean, I'm not going to look at hundreds of documents, but uh, let's pick up five at random. I'll pick up five random documents, and I'd like to check and see, are these things real? Um, where can I look at them? Is there a place online where I can say, okay, this looks real, it looks valid, as far as I can tell? Being yeah, absolutely. Well, one of them is uh, I, I myself wrote an article uh, a little over a year ago. I put up on my website, and I'm not just trying to hawk my site here, but I sure. will point out that I, I did a, uh, an analysis of what I consider to be 12 government documents that take UFOs seriously, and it's on my website, which is keyholepublishing.com, uh, just like looking through a keyhole. Um, you can read it. I've got uh, the, the full uh, high-res JPEGs. You can, you can read the documents yourself, and I provide my own analysis of these top t dozen uh, documents that I feel are particularly interesting. Uh, they're typically all uh, U.S. military documents. A couple um, deal with militaries of other nations as well, and some are one is an FBI memo and so on. But you can just read them. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking at I'm looking at one right now. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm on your website, and it's the first one you have listed is a 1947 Twining memo. Could you maybe sorry. talk a little bit about the Twining memo? Oh, sure, absolutely. It's one of the it's one of the documents that really grabbed my attention early on. And um, General Nathan Twining in 1947 was a three-star general. Uh, he later went on to be a four-star. And in fact, he was uh, Air Force Chief of Staff for a while in the 1950s. So in 1947, he was in charge of what was known as Air, uh, U.S. Air Material Command, or AMC, uh, over at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. And that became Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, shortly after that. So uh, Wright Field was the place, actually, that we, um, we know from, a, from another memo that the so-called Roswell wreckage was sent to. So Wright Field is the place that 
where, where the U.S. Air Force does all of its research and development, or at least a lot of its R&D, is done at Wright-Patt. So Twining was in charge of a major element of that base. And in 1947, he was asked by another general, um, essentially the question, do I need to do anything about this so-called flying saucer phenomenon? Is this, is this something that we're doing? Is this a, a black project that is a secret project, or is it legitimate, and do I have to react to it in some way? So Twining wrote a, a three-page letter to, to this general whose name was Charles Shulgin. And here's the thing about it. He writes, but he could have just said, nah, nothing about it, nothing to it, or he could have said, uh, this is something that we're doing, so you know, keep it on the, on the on the QT. No, he didn't say that. He said the objects were, quote, real and not visionary or fictitious. This is the so-called flying disks. He said they may possibly be natural phenomena like meteors, but he goes on to say, and this is a direct quote, he said the reported operating characteristics such as extreme rates of climb, maneuverability, particularly in roll, and actions which must be considered evasive when sighted lend belief to the possibility that some of the objects are controlled either manually, automatically, or remotely. But then he goes on. It gets even better. He lists a number of common descriptions of these objects. These were coming in from military personnel, not just civilians. He said uh, the characteristics that we're getting is that they're basically silent or almost silent. Uh, they looked metallic. They reflected light. They didn't leave a trail, like a vapor trail. And, and the thing that really gets me the most is that they were either circular or elliptical in shape and often were flat on the bottom and domed on the top. So I would just ask anyone listening, what uh, aerial craft in 1947 would be flat on the bottom and domed on top uh, then or today, as a matter of fact? So, so these are you know, some of the things Twining wrote. And it's a very detailed memo. And again, you can go to my site and read it. Um, incidentally, let me just take a moment to mention there's another, there's several very excellent websites that have large numbers of, of confirmed UFO documents. You can just click and read them. Uh, probably the best of them is known as the Black Vault. Uh, and this is run by a friend and colleague of mine, John Greenwald. Uh, go to blackvault.com and I'm sure you'll find it. And that's a huge, uh, like a warehouse, as it were, of, of confirmed government documents on all kinds of UFO related, not and not all UFO, just a lot of intelligence community things. But I've, I would say the Twining memo is interesting, and what it what it says to me is that in September of 1947, when the Air Force was telling the public that there's nothing to all of this, in fact, the Air Force was talking to itself about this and saying, "No, there's something actually quite significant about this." Um, now, I would add that that particular memo was not a top secret memo; it was only secret. It right. matters what, what secrecy classification we have here. Uh, in other words, you know, there, there was what was called restricted and confidential and secret and top secret, and they're all different. So that if, if you and I were having a conversation and you're, you had a top secret and even beyond clearance, but you were talking to me and I did not have clearance for your particular, whatever your knowledge base was, you would not be allowed to talk to me about that. You would have to restrict right. your uh, knowledge to, to what I'm authorized to hear. And so when you're getting a memo that's only classified secret, we've got to keep in mind that there are still going to be restrictions necessarily on what is said in that. And I would point out that of the very few top secret UFO memos that have come down to us, just about every single one is blacked out completely. 
Right. <laughs> so, so in other words, uh, and, and and by the way, this leads to another memo. And I don't. Again, I don't want to to beat this. No, I, 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 I think it's fine in that sense that I think our listeners are going to uh, err on the side of caution and be skeptical. So, if there's a couple more that are interesting, I, I yeah, let's let's hear about. Well, it. sure, yeah, and and I think that they're they're very wise to be cautious about this field. There's a lot of good information. There's a lot of information that's really dubious and bogus. Uh, a valid memo from 1949, this is an FBI document from early of that year, uh, this went to J. Edgar Hoover, who ran the, the Bureau at the time. It was an FBI memo on UFOs that, that stated, Army intelligence has recently said that the matter of unidentified aircraft or unidentified aerial phenomena and so forth is considered top secret by intelligence officers of both the Army and Air Forces. So that statement tells me that the UFO phenomenon was of a higher level than even secret. And so that the, the top secret memos, whatever, whatever was top secret about it, we to this day in the year 2010 have not received any substantial confirmed top secret memos about, about UFOs other than unconfirmed leak memos, which are being debated to this day. But of confirmed memos from the National Archives, Everything we've got is either secret or below. Um, so I think that this is also very significant. And um, again, I, what I would say when I characterize these, these uh, top 12, as I consider them UFO government documents, uh, a few of them describe some really fen phenomenal encounters that military pilots had in the air, and others just describe how serious the whole thing was. But when you look at them as a sum total of this top 12, or say top 50, if you want to go into it, uh, I think what you'd find is, if not proof that UFOs are ET, then you would find proof that this is kind of a big deal, that it's serious that some of our best and brightest minds were really worked up over it at the same time that they were telling the public, nothing to see here, go on about your business. So to me, when I look at that, I see that's a discrepancy. What are they hiding? <laughs> and it's, uh, it's that type of discrepancy that's kept me engaged in this for all of these years. Yeah, one thing that's really interesting is beyond just, say, um, government paperwork, is that there's a lot of um, like credible, on-the-record um, I guess descriptions of what happened with uh, either well, with primarily with pilots uh, right. intercepting these craft, and the, so it's you know your book is just like one after the other after the other. You know it almost starts to come a blur. It's like oh you know this happened and an F eighteen yeah, scrambled right. and two more F 18s and it was caught on this radar and then these two, yeah. it was confirmed by these two other radar stations and the general freaked out and then the crap you know it's just like one after the other and it's like after a while you're like well this is you know a lot of this is a lot this, of different this stuff. Is getting ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like these multiple different types of aircraft being. Because first you could say, well, you know, okay, so some pilot thinks he sees something. Maybe it's a reflection. Maybe it's exactly. Venus. Yeah. Is they is is a commonly used uh, thing or sun dogs? I'm not even sure what sun dogs. I went are. through the exact same thing. I I thought, look, five, ten, even twenty, you know, reports over the years. Why would that be a big deal? But the the thing that got me is a the sheer quantity and and the obvious gravity of the situation uh, again and again and that you know when i became very very aware that these generals and admirals and beyond were taking it seriously then i thought well it should be taken seriously could you, could you maybe give us one or two of your favorite most interesting 
you know, I just pick them out of a hat. Interesting stories, uh, you know, like we were just talking about. I think that'd be fun to hear. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one thing I, I think is beyond a shadow of a doubt in my own view is that these things, whatever they are, are interested in our advanced technology. Um, they've hung out over uh, back in the 40s over the places where we were developing atomic technology like Los Alamos and Oak Ridge. Those are both scenes of multiple violations of airspace. And they are known to have disabled at least on one occasion, and I think more, our, our actual nukes. Uh, this definitely happened at Malmstrom Air Force Base, which is out in uh, Montana, back in 1967, so more than 40 years ago. Um, I happen to know the man personally who was the officer on duty at the time. He's still alive. His name is Bob Salas. He's a stand-up guy. Um, this thing happened. We have the paperwork, in fact, from Boeing, uh, which did an analysis of the missiles and said, you know, there's really no reason these missiles should have all gone offline, but they did. Uh, we have the U.S. Uh, military documents confirming what happened. And here's the story. This is just phenomenal. In March of 1967, I think March 16th. Now, Malmstrom Air Force Base is just huge. It's this enormous, you can imagine what Montana's like, just lots of flat land out there. Uh, and this is where uh, a lot of uh, nuclear missiles, ICBMs, were being held, uh, ready to launch if need be in the event of World War III. So uh, there were a number of these launch control centers at the base, and over one of them, very early one morning, it was still like, you know, dusk uh, or just, you know, daybreak was happening. Uh, an airman above ground sees this object zigzagging very high above him like a star. It gets closer and uh, a, a second light appears and it's larger. So his uh, superior is standing there and they're both, these guys are watching it, maneuvering in impossible ways. And they call the... Uh, the guys below ground at the launch control center, and, and one of them is Bob Salas, who was a lieutenant at the time. And they're saying, look, we got this stuff going on above the ground. We don't know what this is. And Salas is like, yeah, okay, sure, right. He says, just keep watching them and let me know if they get any closer. Well, a couple of minutes later, he gets a phone call, and now the NCO, the non-commissioned officer, calls him almost hysterical. He's saying there's this red, glowing UFO hovering outside the front gate. What should we do? Okay, this is, this is what happened. Uh, Salas is like, uh, well, hang on, make sure the site is secure, and I'll, I'll uh, make a telephone call. And the, the guy says, uh, I have to go now, sir. One of the guys just got injured. <laughs> so what happened was, at that moment, Salas goes to his commander, wakes him up, and as he's briefing him, then alarm goes off, and they're in this little little room. And both of, men, of the men now see what is called the no-go light go on for one of the missiles. And within several seconds, about 10 more of those lights went on. In other words, 10 missiles in a row went offline. Boom, 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 one after the next. The same thing happened 20 miles away, still at the base, at another launch control facility. The exact same type of scenarios taking place where men above ground were seeing uh, an unidentified object hovering over the site as about a dozen Minutemen missiles go into no-go status. Um, 
Now, I've talked to Bob Salas about this more than one time. He, in fact, wrote a very detailed book about it. He reproduced a number of the, uh, the Air Force documents about it. Uh, these are readily available online. And again, as I mentioned, that missiles were, were taken down. They, they were, excuse me, they were down for most of the day. They did go back online. Boeing did an analysis of them at their Seattle plant looking for causes of the shutdown. And according to the Boeing engineering chief, there was no technical explanation that could explain the event. Of course, I, I would point out that UFOs were not part of the analysis, so Boeing wasn't saying, you know, did the UFOs cause it? But even if, there, if they accounted for the UFOs, they were unable to determine why those missiles went offline. But what happened on that day is that approximately 20 U.S. ICBMs went offline. Just so happened at the same time that men above the ground were noticing UFOs right over the site. So what does that mean? Well, look, you can, you can debate it all you want. I can debate it all I want, and maybe there's some other bizarre explanation, but what sure it looks like to any reasonable mind, reasonable mind in my view, is that those objects above the ground probably somehow were responsible for these nukes going offline. This is, this is absolutely incredible stuff. And the thing that's going through my mind is, if, if this is true, if, if ETs exist, and I feel strange saying that, what, what does this mean for society? Well, it, that's a great question. And I ask myself that every single day. Uh, I've written two volumes of history relating to this. Each is more than 500 pages. Um, I'm, I'm actually, and there'll be a third volume, to, which will take the story to the present day. Um, I'm writing a book right now, um, co-authoring a book, which will be done in uh, a couple of months, and it, it deals explicitly with this question that you've asked, Justin. Um, right. My co-author is a really neat guy himself. He actually um, did a sci-fi show back in the late 90s, but not necessarily sci-fi, and that show was called Dark Skies. I have a feeling a number of people listening remember it. Um, his name is Bryce Zabel. Uh, Bryce and I have become very good friends, and, and the book that we're writing, we've titled A.D. After Disclosure. Uh, I, d I characterize it as a what-if type of book. So if you do or don't believe in UFOs, what if it's true, and what if the secrecy on UFOs were to end? And so really what we're trying to do is a sort of a feet-on-the-ground analysis of our society, of our world, and to try to understand how might that change our world. So in a sense, what does it mean? Well, what, what I... Well, I'll, I'll just very quickly here say what I think it means is that we, humanity, are probably being observed by more than one intelligence that has the ability to observe us, and I have a feeling they find us rather interesting. Now, um, now you say more than one intelligence. What, what does that mean? I mean, what, what evidence is there that there might be more than one alien species if there are alien species? Right. Out there. What? Well, the reason I, I think this, and again, I would hasten to add that I'm hypothesizing here. I don't sure. know this for a fact. Um, I think that there's more than one just on the basis of uh, what I personally consider to be reliable enough reports of individuals who seem to have had encounters with these other craft or and possibly beings. Uh, to me, there's enough of a variety and um, to make me think that there's there's either a whole lot of floor models out there or you've got different types of people or beings that are observing us. Um, I, I will say that in my uh, journeys here, I've spoken to a number of people with, with very, very high security clearances, a number of whom know multiple U.S. presidents. And 
sure, they could be lying to me like anyone else, but I, I think that I believe some of these individuals that I've spoken to and, and they've said to me, I mean, point blank, that this is a real phenomenon and that it's, it's very serious. Um, I've gotten the impression that there's, there's more than one type. The reason I think that we're interesting, though, is an easier one to answer. Um, I mean, look, you know, this is a tech show. I'm interested in tech uh, to a large extent. I'm not a, I'm not a computer geek and I'm not a scientist, but I'm, I'm interested, for example, in uh, the future of AI. I've read a lot of books on this. I correspond with some of those authors, too. Uh, people think UFOs are whack. Well, you should read a couple of books by mainstream people on the future of artificial intelligence and then see how far out UFOs are. I mean, look, the AI community is pretty much nonchalantly assuming that within, say, 50 years, we're going to have AI that will probably surpass human intelligence. Now, it could be 20 years, it could be 50, it could be 100, um, but this is not an outrageous assumption. Then you look at developments down the road in nanotech. You look at developments down the road in quantum computing, which I struggle to wrap my brain around, but I know it's there and I know it's about to happen. Uh, developments in biotech, where we are, we've mapped the human genome. In other words, you know, we went 100 years ago from having a society of horses pulling carts, and that was the human species 100 years ago. And we've gone from that to uh, cars, to telephones, to radios, to TVs, to atomic bombs, to guided missiles, to computers, to, uh, you know, sophisticated integrated circuits, to uh, iPhones. To the iPhone and, 4. And the iPhone 4, right? There you go. And the well, iPad, I've, I've, right, Justin? The iPad. Hey, man, I, I like that iPad. Um, we're, so we're so your theory is that they're studying us to glean tech, technological advances from us? Well, what I'm saying is this. You know, 300 years ago, if you or I were to see what might be a UFO, we had absolutely no ability to deal with it in any way, really. Uh, today, that's really not quite the case. And and our technology is not moving in a linear way. It's truly moving in an exponential way. So in other words, we're like a century away or less from literally from reinventing ourselves as a species. This is really not a crazy idea. And so what I'm saying to you is that any observing intelligence is probably aware of that. And they're probably aware of the fact that we may just be about to leap into their world. That's what I'm saying. And and they are very likely aware of this fact. I mean, look, you and I, the three of us, are not likely to survive an interstellar flight to the nearest star, which happens to be more than four light years away. All right, that's a long distance for us. We're not going to make it, but we must ask ourselves, will we in 50 years have the capability to send a ship with artificial intelligence aboard it, that might make such a journey. I don't think that's such a crazy idea. And then we may want to ask ourselves, has anyone else ever in the history of the universe gotten to a point where they achieved that level and have the ability to observe us and find us of some interest? The depressing thing is it sounds, it sounds so similar to um, the premise behind Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, where, <laughs> where basically humans, you know, reach warp speed. And then because, we, because we've passed that, that envelope, then uh, the Vulcans get in touch with us. That's the only, only problem well, with it for me. Look, once you, uh, I, I, once you get past certain basic restrictions in our own thinking, I mean, the fact is, we can't assume that 2010 is going to look like 2030. Certainly it doesn't look like 1990 or 1950. So clearly, we're going to be in a different place somehow, some way, technologically, within another 40 years, say in 2050, 
we're not going to look the same as a species, as a civilization. Uh, whether that means we've achieved, achieved warp or whether it means we'll achieve the singularity in terms of AI, I don't really know. But I do think it's rather foolish to assume we're just going to stay at this, at this level. Yeah, so, it's interesting that you bring up the singularity because I was, I was just, you, you, you know, what you were talking about reminded me of uh, Ray Kurzweil. I'm sure some of yeah. the, our listeners have, have read Ray Kurzweil's work or aware of it. And he, he talks a lot about the singularity where the exponential increase in technology um, becomes so fast that everything just transforms, you know, I, I guess it's almost beyond what um, we would be able to imagine. And, and the whole question is whether it's a soft landing or hard landing for humanity. Because, right. you know, we, the AI increases dramatically and AI builds on AI. And, you know, things like, you know, uh, genetic engineering, like, you know, or, or, you know, whatever. I mean, it could get crazier. You're, you're right. That stuff even sounds crazier than aliens, to be honest. It does. That's Kurzweil, the, yeah. the, the phrase Kurzweil uses for that is godlike when he refers to that level of intelligence. That's a word that keeps coming up in his work. Um, He's an optimist about all of this. He believes in a soft landing, I guess, in the sense that it's not going to be like the Terminator day when they decided to wipe us out, but rather we're going to sort of merge with them, I think is really what he thinks. Um, not everyone feels that way. I know that the, the founder of Sun Microsystems, Bill Joy, is famous for having uh, expressed his belief that, you know, we're going to be screwed, man. <laughs> they, they get to a certain point, they're going to look at us like a little fly in their arm and go, oh, humanity, smack, you know, there they go. Uh, will that happen? <laughs> Maybe well, that's why they call it the singularity because it, like the singularity inside a black hole, where the physics is all kaka cuckoo, we can't really predict what's going to happen. We also cannot really predict what will happen when we get truly strong AI because we're not going to be the dominant factor in that equation. So uh, who knows? But it's possible that we'll we'll make it through. I tend to think that we will. Uh, and I and you know back bringing it back to the UFO topic, I just think that whoever these other guys are, um, you know, they're probably aware that we're about to hit this threshold. I have a feeling they're interested in us. Well, you'd, you'd think that, I had heard one theory that sounded kind of interesting, that what people, you know, maybe seeing or, or you know, this the sort of the, the, the character of the alien, they call the greys or, or whatever, the guys and stuff, that those may not actually be aliens, but more sort of like um, equivalent of robots, synthetic mm -hmm sort of synthetic beings, the yeah. beings that, you know, might be the equivalent, hey, we can send these, these guys that can replicate or they can, you know, there's their lifespans are, are, are huge amount of, you know, are right. extremely long and they can extend, span, they can live long enough to make the space voyage or who knows, whatever. But exactly. I mean, that would all make sense. I mean, you know, because robots that we make 100 years from now are going to look like robots that we have now. I mean, robots might look somewhat human-like, you know. Yeah, they, they could labor. probably be cybernetic to a large extent, genetically engineered. You know, it just makes that would almost make more sense if you were sending probes out throughout the universe. You said, "Okay, we're advanced. We're going to start exploring." The only way you get advanced is by having the the desire to explore and understand, right? So, if you have the desire to explore and understand, you're going to extend your understanding as far as you can. So, you're probably going to extend probes and do reconnaissance throughout the galaxy. I would imagine. Um, so, I would think one of the crazy ideas that I I uh, got. Just, not that long ago, was thinking about, you know, the various alien typologies that you hear about. The greys are, you know, everyone has heard about them, these little humanoid type guys, big heads and black eyes. Uh, but there are other types of entities that people claim to have reported. Some of them are reptoid or reptilian in appearance. Mm -hmm. uh, some are insect-like in appearance. And when you think about it, okay, we have reptiles on Earth. We've got insects on Earth. We've got humanoids on Earth. <clears throat> so what I, what I wonder, you know, some people have, have looked at that and, and that's 
made them somewhat skeptical that, well, why would you have aliens, I mean, that are like reptiles and insects? I mean, hell, that's what we have. Well, one possibility, and again, I, I'm only speculating here, would be, uh, you know, imagine that we're uh, an AI intelligence, we've arrived at Earth, uh, and we, for whatever reason, have a desire to interact with the species there. We might just take some of the native genetic material and construct our own uh, entity that's going to work for us. And right. uh, who knows, maybe it's possible that the, the so-called reptoids are a genetic creation made from uh, from something here on Earth, and the same with the insectoids and, and the greys. I, I don't really know. Um, again, I fully admit that this is just me being out there. <clears throat> One thing I always try to distinguish in this field, it's important to do this, is what I know is true and what I think might be true. So I'm very happy to speculate, but it's always important for me to remember what is it that I absolutely know as opposed to what I think things are. And what I absolutely know is that our military and other militaries as well are chasing these things. And I also know that lots and lots of people, a lot more than you may think, have seen what they believe is a UFO. And most of them don't talk, by the way. Most of them don't tell anyone. Or they may tell a friend or a family member, and that's about it. Um, I've spoken to hundreds, literally hundreds of people about their personal sightings, and the only reason they talk to me is they know I won't laugh at them. Right. So there's a lot of people out there. Uh, some of them, I mean, these are very traumatic in, at certain times, and others, others are just kind of curious, little, you know, and may probably don't amount to much. But some of these events are very important to people, uh, very upsetting to them emotionally at many times, and they don't really know who to talk to. So there's something going on, and I, I don't think that we do ourselves justice by dismissing it or even making a big joke out of it, which is easy to do when we're uncomfortable with something. But nonetheless, uh, I would you know remind anyone listening that they probably have friends and maybe family members who believe that they may have been abducted or may have had a very close encounter that's upsetting to them in some way. One of the things that, that theoretically makes sense to me is this concept of there being different species and different types. Because if you think about it, even on Earth, amongst each of our different populations, say, for example, in America or England, there's so many different types of languages, so many different types of accents, so many different mm -hmm. types of people who dress so differently. Sure. So if E.T. existed, why wouldn't they have many different types, many different types of fashions, many different types of concepts? You know? Well, and also, you talk about genetic engineering, right? I mean, yeah. as we're just starting to get into being able to do that kind of stuff, I mean, what kind of... Uh, genetic engineering would uh, our species be able to do in 500 or 1,000 years from now? Maybe whole new species arise from us as we explore different planets and have to adapt to new planets and new uh, atmospheres and different types of things. I mean, we could end up evolving ourselves. Um, I mean, all this stuff sounds really crazy, but it's, there's nothing scientifically probably incorrect about those, pl those plausibilities. And it, it could have all risen out of the same source. It's just over thousands of years are sort of like variations on a theme, you know? It is yeah. essentially evolution. I mean, why, why shouldn't part of evolution be that man takes control of evolution? Well, that's, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. That's right. exactly. It'll move so much more rapidly than any sort of natural selection that it'll just take over. Um, so, uh, Richard, I got, I got a ton of questions. So I want to try and ask some of these. I, I'm, I, like I said, I've, I'm it's so excited to get you on the show because I just I've listened to or watched a number of your videos, and um, it's just I have a lot of stuff I think would be fun to talk about. So, um, Justin, if you don't mind, I'm just going to kind of blitz. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jason. All right, then. Go on. You take the floor. You can have the floor. <laughs> All right. So, um, okay, let's see. Where do I start? There's a one, um, 
none of these are going to be really in any kind of order, but I'm just going to kind of ask some of them. So there was one story you talk about Ben Rich, and he was the second director of Lockheed Skunk Works from 75 right. to 91. And That's I'm just going to read out for our audience. He, you know, the notes I, t- I took from uh, Wikipedia, and he said he led the development of the F-117, the first production stealth, air- stealth aircraft. He was... He also worked on the F-104, U-2, SR-71, A-12, and F-22, among others, many of which still cla- are still classified. And his autobiography, Skunk Works, a personal memoir my, of my years at Lo- of Lockheed. So he was a, an alumnus of UCLA School of Engineering, right? And he gave right. some talk back in uh, the late 90s. And he made a few very interesting statements that, I, I, that you um, were telling a story about. I'd like to, if you wouldn't mind, recounting that here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, it was in 1993. Uh, when he was uh, at the UCLA School of Engineering for an alumnus uh, kind of get-together. Now, uh, at that talk, that was a a fairly standard history of skunk works that he gave to a small group of people. One of the individuals in that audience uh, was a man who was an IBM executive and also at the same time was a... um, a member of the organization called MUFON, which is the Mutual UFO Network, um, the largest American UFO group out there, I guess. Um, I happen to know this man personally. His name is Jan Harzen. Uh, so Jan was in attendance at this lecture, and Ben Rich is <clears throat> talking about Lockheed. And he then ends his talk on this very kind of dramatic note, and he says, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. And, you know, thank you very much. And that was the end of it. Right. Round of applause. And now, you know, everyone is different. Some people don't like Shakespeare. Some people do. Some people are not very curious, and some people are. Well, most of the people filed out of the room after that very dramatic and intriguing statement. But uh, there were about a dozen or so people who stayed behind. And so informally, they sort of chatted with Ben Rich about this and, you know, essentially saying, well, what do you mean we have the technology to take E.T. home? Because that's kind of um, intriguing, isn't it? And uh, Yeah, because it's hard to tell it, whether he's just kind of joking or he's just sort of, you know, being exaggerated. Right, right, just exactly. Just funny. Ah, you know, we got, we're in the space now, so, you know. So according to Jan, uh, and again, I'm just really – all I have to go on is, is what he said uh, publicly and did say to me as well, personally. Uh, he said, Ben Rich said a couple of things. Most of them, Jan repeated, he said, are verbatim. And then he said one was a, was a close paraphrase as best he could remember. But this, and I'm cu- pulling this off the top of my head. I could pull out my book. But basically, Ben Rich said, we now have the technology to take E.T. home, and it won't, it won't take us a lifetime to do it. He said uh, also... The, uh, we need to uh, take the technology out of the black world, that is out of the clandestine world, and bring it out into the open. Uh, but he said he was, he was skeptical that we would be able to do that, but that's what we needed to do. And um, gosh, I can't remember. Basically, that's what he was saying. You know, Did that, he say something like that, one of the equations was – there was an error yeah, yeah, one of the equations? Thank you. Right. thank you for reminding me. He says uh, we, we figured – we've figured it out one of the equations was wrong but we got we we corrected that and now it's correct and i don't know what he exactly was referring to i mean maybe something to do with um you know interstellar speed perhaps or maybe a propulsion system i don't know but that's what he what he said 
So that's very uh, suggestive. And Ben Rich did not explicitly say to the group that ETs are here. He didn't say mm-hmm. that. But according to Jan, again, this is how he read Ben Rich's statement, that that is exactly what Ben Rich meant. Uh, you got to keep in mind, you know, when you're a guy like Ben Rich, you're CEO of a big major division, hugely important. Uh, guys like that, they, they learn the CYA rule. They got to talk very, very carefully about everything. And so they're never, ever going to be out in the open about something. We do have a confirmed letter, however, from Ben Rich from 1985 uh, when deal, dealing with this exact uh, topic. Excuse me, 1987. Uh, ben Rich was writing, or is it 86 now? God almighty, I've got it in my book. 86. Right. Sorry for being uh, not, not sure about that, but, but uh, Ben Rich had a friend named John Andrews, who was a, a very close friend of his and a, a senior uh, aviation illustrator um, who knew Ben Rich and knew Kelly Johnson, Rich's predecessor at Skunk Works, very, very well. They were all good friends. So John Andrews wrote to Ben Rich a letter, which we have, it's in the public domain, and he said, look, I've got a lot of respect for you and Kelly, and I would like to know if you believe, as I do, that some UFOs are man-made and some are not man-made. Okay, some are, in other words, from ETs, and I think he said that explicitly. Just want to know your opinion, Ben. So Ben Rich writes back, about a week or two later, uh, says, yes, I am of the same opinion. Um, There are man-made, really focus in this letter on man-made UFOs. He may call them, UFOs might mean, unfunded opportunities. <laughs> uh, that's a very right. suggestive statement. <laughs> what is an unfunded opportunity? Um, well, there's a couple of ways to look at it. One way that I tend to look at it, and all I have to go on is my own thought process on this, is that if you've recovered, as many of us believe, some of these objects that have come to us in the form of crash retrievals, there's a number of pretty compelling stories about that, in my opinion, and that might be an unfunded opportunity. Another way to interpret unfunded opportunity might just be black budget allocations, uh, unfunded in the sense that it's not officially funded, but we're getting our money from various means. Um, But that's what Ben Rich said. So, you know, you got guys at the top of the aerospace game, Ben Rich, Kelly Johnson's another one. And what we've discovered about them is that they are all interested in UFOs. I myself received a a, uh, an email years ago from a former president of a major defense corporation, Raytheon. He was retired. He wrote to me out of the blue as a fan. He said, you know, you're doing good work. I wrote back. I said, well, that's great. Thank you. Why is it, I said, that a lot of you uh, higher level aerospace people are interested in this topic? And I was basically just trying to, uh, you know, elicit an answer. And he wrote back. He said, well, look, a lot of us have personal encounters. and We have personal knowledge of it. And beyond that, he was cagey and didn't say anything. But uh, now, you you said at some point um, that the government, the military, which had recovered craft um, according to various documents and accounts, but that at some point it was transferred to uh, corporations. A lot of it became under corporate control. Corporations that were uh, involved with working on you know uh, equipment for the military. This is my this is my opinion. Yeah. This okay. Is my- because, um, right, because the, the military itself does not develop its aircraft. It doesn't develop its rockets. It's the, com- right. it's the companies. It's Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, Rockwell Collins. I mean, those exactly. air- big aerospace companies are the ones that do all the work. So they have to have some kind of access to, 
if so if there was technology that the government had retrieved and if the government said all right well this looks really cool what can we do with it they're going to say well we got to have our guys work on it our guys being the r&d departments of some of these top firms so we're going to create some what special access black budget programs where they're going to work on stuff exactly. and is that sort of the working your working theory on that that is uh and i, I believe it for a couple of reasons one there <clears throat> from the the few public studies that we have on special access programs that is the prototypical black budget programs that people hear about they're known as special access programs um there's not a lot of publicly done work on the structure of those for in the first place but there's a there has been some that's been done uh a, a very good one and one of the few really in-depth ones was done about a decade ago by an aviation writer named bill sweetman who's not a ufo guy per se i mean i'm sure he, he may be interested in that for all i know but uh he's he's uh, done a lot of work a lot of books on um, the development of stealth and on the um the Aurora aircraft and on the, the Blackbird and so forth. So he, that's, that's, his, that's his domain. But Sweetman, <clears throat> um, 1999, 2000, did a study for Jane's International Weekly on uh, you know, how the Pentagon <clears throat> really runs its black budget programs. And here's what he concluded. This is before the, the George W. Bush administration when things got really crazy. His conclusion then was that there were probably... Uh, probably a couple of hundred, maybe at least 150 true special access programs within the Department of Defense that appeared really to be dominated not by Pentagon people so much as the private contractors. Now, he's, again, he's not doing UFOs here, but he says the way it looks like it's gone is that these programs have their own uh, security classification system. They have their, their project manager typically is a defense contractor, not a, de a Pentagon person. And that typically, the way it's looking is that the, the Pentagon DOD liaisons are basically there to function as uh, funding conduits rather than anything else. And so really, the whole thing has become dominated, in his opinion, by the contractors. Now, that's the, the world of black budget. This is exactly uh, in line with everything else that we know about how the Pentagon and how U.S. military strategy, for that matter, is gone. You, you know, I, in, in, uh, in doing some uh, research for our interview, I, I wanted to do a little. Uh, I, looked in, I looked into the National Reconnaissance Organization, which designs, builds, and operates the uh, oh. spy satellites for the right. U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And so I, was, I made I wrote down some notes. So anybody who doesn't know what the NRO is, that's that's what they do. And it's it, one note it said here in Wikipedia. It says the majority of the workers for the NRO are private corporations, with seven billion out of the agency's eight billion budget going to private corporations, which is in line with exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So seven yeah, eighths wow. of the money of the NRA oh, is going to private corporations, like some of the the, the, the companies we just named. Yeah, that's that's a that's a fascinating uh, quote um, statistic. The other thing about the NRO, incidentally, and it's really worth pointing out here, is that, that organization existed for 30 years in absolute secrecy. No one knew it existed from 1960 to about 1990. It was a felony for a member of Congress even to mention the NRO in its proceedings. That's how secret that organization was. So lest you believe it's impossible to have a, a, an entire black arm of government. Think again. The NRO and before that, the NSA similarly existed in total secrecy for many years. Um, so we actually have a, a history in this country of confirmed organizations that existed totally off the radar for a long, long, long time. So you know, in, do, in, in, in doing my research, I got two more points on that, if you wouldn't mind me. Yeah, yeah, please. So one was uh, Bletchley Park. 
which was a site of the UK's uh, main decryption establishment. And according to Wikipedia, it says they decrypted the German Enigma and Lorentz machines. Um, and it was only revealed to the public in the 1970s. 9,000 people were working at Bletchley Park. Okay, so anybody who's read Cryptonomicon, which uh, you know, I'm sure we have some readers of. Uh, who, you, Justin, you know who wrote Cryptonomicon and uh, Snow Not Crash? Off the top of my head, uh, Neil Stevenson. So he he wrote about Cryptonomicon uh, and Alan. You guys Turing. are good. <laughs> Alan, yeah, Alan Turing is you know he's a big time mathematician and he right, was right. guys led the, the the decryption efforts at Bletchley Park. Well, so 9,000 people worked there, and then it wasn't until the 70s that anyone knew about it. So nobody talked about it. Nobody. And think and, about it. It was revealed in the 70s because it didn't matter at that point. It didn't matter. And then, what if it still mattered? They wouldn't have it, revealed exactly. it. Exactly. And so it's 9,000 people never talked, right? And then the other one, the other notes I, I just read, I was reading about, and this is all via Wikipedia. I just <laughs> went around, I started making <laughs> some notes for myself. And it said the Manhattan Project employed 130,000 people. Project research took place at more than 30 sites, including universities across the United States, Canada, and the United States, uh, United Kingdom. And so you had places, you know, obviously Los Alamos and Oak Ridge and University of Chicago and, and uh, you know, all these places. And nobody knew about it until, you know, obviously after the war at some point. If we take the, 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 the general secrecy concept just to the absolute macro level, which is does ET exist or not? Do UFOs exist or not? I mean, why does the government need to keep it such a big secret? Why is it so important? I have a theory about this. Um, and I, again, we have to rewind the clock, so to speak, back to the 1940s and pretend that you are Harry Truman. So you've been presented with this and really, truly awesome piece of information, right? That not only are there apparently other people or other beings or whatever they are flying around uh, with technology that exceeds our own, but we, we've acquired, let's say, some of their technology. So pretend, okay, that that's the case. I actually think that is the case. So if that's the case, the question that you're presenting yourself is, what do you do about it? Do you tell the world or not? You might have an instinct to tell the world. Um, you might think it's the right thing to do, but then you might think twice because, A, you've got a cold war going on. And if you tell the world that you've got this exotic technology in your possession, it might become very difficult not to share it. Uh, after all, at that same time, the United States had a monopoly of atomic technology, of functioning atomic bombs. And it was a very big issue. People forget this, but in the late 40s, it was a big issue uh, that the UN should take control over the nuclear over nuclear technology because the idea was that it's it's too big a thing for any one country to dominate america's answer was sorry no thank you well uh, so they were not willing to share atomic technology of course the soviets had their spies and they ended up getting it but the point is america was not willingly uh you know sharing its atomic technology so if you're not going to share that I, I don't think you'd want to share something as exotic as alien technology. Surely not. What you might do, though, is you'd get your top people, gather them together in a team, and you'd say, okay, we're going to have a division of labor here. Your job is to manage the press and manage the media to keep this disabled. Your job over there, you're going to bring this to private industry and have them study this, this stuff so that we can figure it out and decide if there's anything worthwhile here that we can do. Uh, your job is going to be to find out how bad the panic might be and so on and so on. And I think this is exactly what did happen. But then here's the problem with secrecy, all right? It may have been, uh, you know, if I were the president, I might have said, let's do this and then we'll revisit this in a couple of years and decide our game plan. Um, it, but the problem with secrecy is that it develops its own momentum, it develops its own raison d'etre, it develops its own profit. Uh, 
So, you know, let's take this analogy further, and we've got a team of genius-level scientists who, after five or ten years, they have a eureka moment where they discover something about this ET technology that they can use. We can improve our integrated circuits. We can develop laser technology, opti fiber optics, who knows? Something that's really valuable. Suddenly, it seems to me, uh, they have zero incentive for, for wanting to give this secret up because now you've got a goose that lays golden eggs, A. And secondly, what if some of the, uh, the technologies that derive from this are truly revolutionary? I mean, after all, we have to assume whatever these things are flying, it enables them to be silent, to stop on a dime, to take off instantly. I have to assume it's not just high-octane gasoline. It's got to be something a little bit better than that, uh, whether they've discovered controlled nuclear fusion, maybe, or whether it's uh, something more exotic like the zero-point energy field. Whatever it is they've got is better than what we're using in our petroleum industry. And then we have to ask ourselves, do we truly want to supplant the petroleum industry? Well, maybe some of us do. But if you're running nations, if you're running international infrastructures, you might not want to, at least not in 1960, when it looked like you had all the oil to last forever. And based on 1960 levels of consumption, maybe you did. Of course, the problem is this isn't 1960 anymore, and everyone wants this stuff, and we're sucking it down a lot faster. Um, but my point is simply that once the secrecy momentum begins and it develops its own infrastructure, and then the other aspect is this. You've got to pay for the R&D. You've got to pay for the replication to some extent. That's expensive. All right. And that requires the creation of black budget protocols. I actually believe that students of the black budget are really missing something when they ignore the UFO topic because I personally believe that the UFO phenomenon is one of the key initiators of what has become our black budget world. All right. Because out of necessity, you can't let Congress know that you're doing this because if you let Congress know you're researching this stuff, well, then there goes the secret. So by, by its very nature, you've got to create an end run around your formal constitutional system of doing things. And that just gets you in all kinds of illegality. I mean, you're going to have a lot of pissed off people once you reveal this secret. So there's a lot of incentives for not giving the secret up. And the further you go into this, the harder it gets. The longer you've lied, the harder it becomes to kind of come clean on this. So really, at this stage in the game, these guys have, in my view, they have no incentive for kind of saying, yeah, you know, guess what? We've learned all these years. Yeah, some UFOs are alien, and yeah, you know, they don't want to do that. You know, um, it kind of reminds me, I mean, I don't want to get too into the politics of this, because so I, I have a few more questions, but, you know, I, I would listen to some... Um, People are experts in sort of Middle East and Middle East affairs, and they're talking about and they're speculating on. Okay, so why are we in Iraq, for instance? Right? And there's no <laughs> agreement. There's no agreement now, even among the real experts, the people who who that's this is all they write about and this is all they do. I don't. That shouldn't be a hard one. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, is it the oil? <laughs> is it uh, control of pipelines? Is it um, is it keeping uh, Russia and uh, China in check? Is, is it, it the poppies and the heroin? Yeah, I mean, well, that's Afghanistan, but all this stuff, right? Right. And so, but one of the guys, the, the top guys, who said, you know. Um, one of my favorite podcasts is antiwar.com, and this guy Scott Horton interviews these guys every day. And he'll and every once in a while has them. I'm sorry, so why are we there? You know, what's the deal? And uh -huh. one one of the guys says, I think it's Gordon, Dr. Gordon Prather might be, and he says, listen, forget 
pipelines, forget Israel, forget weapons of mass destruction, forget any of that stuff. It was never about that stuff. Now it's about the Pentagon. It's about inertia. You know, and I thought that was really interesting, you know, because if a lot of our foreign policy is now sort of more about inertia, we do things because that's the way we've been doing. We just start leaning in one direction and sometimes we just keep going. And it almost explains to some degree why, you know, why is there still secrecy? Well, there started out secrecy. And it's just once you have a gigantic bureaucracy and all kind of security pro protocols, you don't just suddenly just break them all. It's just sort of, like you said, has a life of its own. I, I, I totally agree. In fact, the Washington Post just yesterday published the first in what's going to be a series of articles on the U.S. intelligence community. Now, you've got to be a little bit careful because the Washington Post is, is almost a mouthpiece for the U.S. intelligence community. They've been shot through with CIA from the beginning. But, it was that but Project Mockingbird, which was revealed in the church proceedings back in the Yeah, the well, Project Mockingbird, uh, I don't know if that was Washington Post, but uh, certainly, absolutely, the, the former publisher of the Washington Post, Catherine Graham, uh, was, was, you know, in with CIA for her whole life. Um, they were all, they're all very, very tight with each other. Um, but the Post has done genuine journalism, of course, and, and uh, but they're doing a series now on the Intel community. Uh, yesterday was their first article, and it was very good. It's a good piece, and it basically describes how sprawling and utterly out of control and uh, unmanageable the U.S. intelligence community has become, and, and not only out of control, but unable, it, it's almost impossible to get a handle on what the hell it's actually doing. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's just government, government really only grows, it goes in one direction usually, right? It just grows. I mean, any type of government yeah, right. just gets exactly. So I think, I think this article, well, your argument about Pentagon inertia, I think is, is certainly, that's probably why we're there now. Uh, right. You know, I won't, we can get off track here, but I would say that the U.S. did go in initially just to steal the oil, which they've done, by the way. Uh, that oil in the bad old days of Saddam was under Iraqi state control, which meant, yes, yeah, Saddam skimmed and lived like a king and all of that. But it also paid for the whole Iraqi country, basically, hospitals, schools, right. roads, all infrastructure. That's actually not the case anymore. That's under, um, it's been private. <laughs> so to speak, which has been, I think, the goal all along. It didn't happen after the first Gulf War, but it did finally happen with this current war that has bankrupted the U.S., but has enriched certain people beyond uh, the most wild dreams of avarice. Right. I, that's a whole other area of interest to me, but I'm not going to go yeah. down that path because I sure. feel it's a whole other. We'll, 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 <laughs> yes, we'll absolutely. Really absolutely. Uh, I'm interested to know, um, there's a, a guy named Nick Cook. He... Um, he, mm -hmm. Let's see, he was, um, Publishers Weekly, I was, he has a book called The Hunt for Zero Point, Inside the Classified World of Anti-Gravity yeah, Technology. Very good and um, Publishers Weekly said, for the last 15 years, Cook has been an aviation reporter and editor at Jane's Defense Weekly, a defense industry trade journal that one would expect to find Cheney and Rumsfeld discussing on the way to the briefing room. Because Jane's Defense Weekly is sort of the insider's world of the aerospace industry, right? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, right. that's the magazine that those, the experts, the, the uh, professionals read. And right. so he's a very, very serious guy, and he was a real expert in the field. But he goes, and I, he, he, I guess he did some study. He was looking into some of the black budget stuff, and he was looking into some of this zero point. Was there anything to zero point technology? Because I guess at right. some point someone slipped something under his door that um, was talking about uh, that – I, I, something about that. And he said, all right, I'm going to follow this up. This is very interesting. Kind of like you. You're a serious guy. You come across something that's very interesting. You're like, I'm going to find where the trail reads because I'm a curious guy. That's, and, that's right. And in I'm his case, what, yeah, I'm just curious what you think of Quick Cook and what he's done and, and stuff. Well, I think he wrote a very important book. Um, in fact, I, I wished 
that his book had come out before my first book came out because I would have incorporated a lot of his, his research into it. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to. If there was one real weakness I felt in my first volume of history, the, the there's a lot of them, I'm sure, but the, the biggest one to me was the, uh, I didn't really appreciate the whole uh, Nazi German technology of World War II and to what extent that might have affected the, the UFO scene after the war. And in other words, the claim of German flying saucers, um, to what extent is that, is that a reality? Um, Nick Cook, uh, as an aviation guy over at Jane's, you know, spoke for his entire profession when he said, well, we consider all that a whole lot of nonsense. Um, and, and in very much in an X-Files-like manner, someone left a note on, I think, on his desk, sort of hinting that he should look into that. And they gave him a lead or two, I think. Um, so he decided to follow into it. And he decided... He decided I mean, wouldn't you if someone left something like that on your desk? Well, sure, I mean, if he had reason, I had reason to go into it. Yeah. Of course, I mean, it's it always a bit of a... It's a, it's a career... You know, people got to rem- have to remember, it's a career gamble. When you go into an, a topic that is subject uh, to nothing but ridicule, and, and the whole idea of German flying saucers is almost as bad as UFOs in general, uh, you're taking a chance by really going off and veering away into it. Uh, but he took that chance, and he found uh, a lot of smoke and maybe some fire. So in other words, he found what he believed uh, was, was pretty good evidence that the Germans had a very advanced uh, program in a lot of unconventional physics dealing with flying saucer technology uh, that they were building uh, various types of prototype disks um, along these lines. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing about his research, too. By the time he finished and wrote his conclusion, he said, um, if, in effect, this has been a, a real education for me. Um, and for those who are interested in the UFO phenomenon, he said, I have to say that my study of this, uh, although, yes, I believe that there is a kind of German-slash-Nazi flying saucer phenomenon, he says, I, I don't believe that that is the full explanation for the UFO phenomenon and the investigation that I've done. In other words, he came to the opinion that there was something more than that, which is my own opinion. Uh, so I think it was very interesting. Nick Cook really, I think, very honestly showed his own uh, evolution in this field. He started out really at square zero, square one, right. uh, not knowing anything about UFOs or the or the the legends of German flying saucers, and came out of it. Talked to a lot of people. A lot of those people that he spoke to, I know personally as well. Uh, Hal Puttoff, who's uh, one of the leading uh, voices for Zero Point Energy, is someone that I do know very well. Um, and he, Nick Nick interviewed him at length for his book. Have you ever had a chance to meet Nick yourself? Personally? No, unfortunately, I would love to. He's, I'm sure he's a fascinating guy, and I hope to uh, cross paths with, paths with him one day. Yeah, he's someone I'd love to get on the show as well. Yeah, uh, I think if, he's, if we he sounds like a very, very cool guy. So a great story I, that, I, I, that I just found fascinating. You talked about this, uh, about Catherine Austin Fitz in her yeah. uh, sort of a, a, a paper, sh- or a, I don't know what I call it, a, an essay she wrote called What's Up with the Black Budget? And yeah. uh, I'm going to read some notes out real quick for our listeners, and then I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on her. She was the former Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Commissioner in the first Bush administration, and a former partner and member of the board of Dillon Reed & Co., and President of Hamilton Securities. Said in, uh, and here's what she writes, she said, in 1998, um, she was approached by John Peterson, head of the Arlington Institute, a small, high-quality military think tank in Washington, D.C., about helping him with a high-level strategic plan Arlington was planning to undertake for the Undersecretary of the Navy. 
She says, when I intended, attended one of the first, my first meetings, I joined in a discussion with about 10 people, which included James Woolsey, former head of the CIA in the Clinton administration, Napier Collins, former founder of Global Business Network and uh, former senior sales executive, and Joe Firmage, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, and former senior shell executive Joe Formage, uh, John, and other members of the Arlington board. The main topic of discussion was whether or not the major project for the coming year should be a white paper on how to help the American people adjust to aliens existing and living among us. When I talk with my few sources from the military and intelligence community, I hear the same themes. Aliens exist and live among us, in part for this reason, as well as the accumulated investment over the last 50 years, the technology we have access to through this through the back budget, black budget is far more advanced than in, is commonly understood. So that's just like amazing, right? I mean, this yeah. is a former, you know, uh, assistant secretary of housing of, of HUD, right? This is this is not a small player, and she's coming out and saying something that's absolutely unbelievable, right? That you have she, this Arlington group, and in fact, one thing I'll you. say is, I was think that would be the, a great opening for a movie, right? You walk into this room and you're sort of <laughs> you think it's going to be like some sort of Jason Bourne identity type movie, some sort of like spy thing. And you walk in this room with these other big shot military people, and then they start break out something about aliens, and you're like, "I'm sorry, what?" Exactly. <laughs> You've been living yeah. in LA too long, Jason. Yeah, well, I, I've talked to a couple a friend of mine who's a who's a screenwriter. I'm like, dude, we should write this movie. This would be awesome. <laughs> it, it would be a good movie. Hell, why not? Um, Yes, I've spoken with Kat. I've never met her in person. I've had phone conversations with Catherine. Uh, I know a number of the people that were mentioned. I, I've met Joe Firmage a couple of times, and <clears throat> he's, he's a really good guy in my view. Uh, I've met John Peterson, uh, and we, we haven't yet had really detailed conversations. I think that we, we may. Uh, John Peterson, I would point out, has been on uh, at least one, once or twice on a short list for secretaries of defense. So he's a very, very well-known, well-respected guy. Uh, the Arlington Institute is very respected within, in the Washington, D.C. circle. So, uh, yeah, this is the case. Now, uh, what they were actually trying to do... Um, what was a kind of study, uh, I, I don't think, I mean, this was not an official U.S. government study, but it, it did have a lot of power players on, and they were inviting her to participate, and she declined. She, she was afraid, I think, to participate in it. Um, but yeah, I, she, she I mean, was under investigation, or she had some people uh, attacking her well, politically, so she didn't want to give anyone any ammo. She was right? she she was uh, she's described herself, and I think with cause, as a, as like a real life enemy of the state character. What mm -hmm. what actually happened with Catherine? So she was number two at HUD for four years under George Bush Senior under Housing and Urban Development. So she was the Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Um, in fact. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of story, I, and I'll, I'll spare the, the, some of the stories which are fascinating about her. But after she left HUD, uh, I think it was with Hamilton Securities, with her own her own firm. She she did a study with some of her uh, her people, of uh, comparing a couple of things. One was known CIA presence in various major American cities, and known points of major major drug trafficking nodes in those same cities. And what she said that they discovered to their shock uh, and, and I think they were afraid was that there was a, a very, very strong direct correlation between strong CIA presence in an area and narco trafficking. And she said that it was at exactly that moment that the Department of Justice began slapping all of these injunctions against her company. Uh, 
So they started really going after her, and she became convinced that it, it was exactly for that reason, that she was uh, delving into areas that she wasn't supposed to be delving. So, get, so getting on some committee, committee to discuss, you know, aliens or something like that is probably, she's thinking, not a safe thing for her. Well, she, time she, she, absolutely. She was afraid because she thought, uh, right, this can be used against me uh, in all the other stuff that she had to be dealing with at that time. Do you listen to No Agenda by any chance? No. Maybe I should. Yeah, so it's a podcast with Adam Curry and John Dvorak. Um, John Dvorak's the guy that we interviewed a few episodes ago. It's a pretty big podcast. I think it's got something like three hundred to 400,000 listeners. But uh, what, it's, what it's about is it's about them just really trying to uncover the spin that the press tries to play and trying to look into the real stories. And th- this is the type of thing that they discuss all the time. So that's something I just wanted to bring up to you. Um, it's, yeah. I'm sorry, go on. Well, that, that, that story that you just related, the Catherine Pitts story from 1998, is, is really something that <clears throat> I personally feel that I have not gotten to the bottom of myself sufficiently, and it's something that I will be dealing with in the next volume of history that I write, which will be the third volume of my study, which is called UFOs in a National Security State. So uh, that will take the story from 1992 to the present day, and, and um, I, I feel that her, uh, that event is is important and it really needs to be uh fleshed out so i my intention is to talk to catherine and and all of the other major players that i'm able to and really try to figure out just what the hell that was about right okay so i gotta i'm gonna get you switch uh gears and ask a couple different questions so we can uh you know before we run out of time um so leslie keen uh who i'll just read a couple notes i have on is an investigative journalist and director of investigations for the coalition for freedom of information and she's a sort of these investigative journalists who did a bunch of stuff in burma i think it was and some other places and she's run some awards so she's one of these just you know hardcore investigative journalists yeah and she's coming out with a book called ufos general called ufos Generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. And it's supposed to be a very, very serious look at the same kind of things you're talking about. People, serious, credible people going on the record. And one of the interesting um, quotes, or I guess um, reviews, the little snippets you see like on the front cover that's on Amazon, I noticed, it says, at last, a serious and thoughtful book about this controversial subject, Skeptics, and true believers will find a treasure trove of insightful and eye-opening information. This book is bound to set the gold standard for UFO research. Mickey Okaku, the PhD author of physics of the impossible, host of sci-fi science and on the science channel. And also he, he does something called, I think, uh, Explorations um, on NPR or something like that. So Mickey Okaku, mm-hmm. who's written a lot of sort of popular science books. I mean, he's like a very respected physicist and uh, sort of a, you know, like I said, he's one of these guys who, who actually communicates right. with the uh, with the uh, mainstream trying to explain what's going on in physics. And so he, you know, he, he's read the book and said, hey, this is, yeah, we can say this looks interesting. So, uh, you know, it must be helpful to you because it seems to me that there's quite a range of, of sort of credibility in terms of what people are writing about on the subject. You got, whereas we might say like in academia in a field, say like physics, right? I mean, there's a pretty high bar to even contribute to that field. Right, you got to get a PhD from a a real institution. Anything you write in physics or math or or any science is going to have to be contributed to a mainstream or a a top journal that's going to have to be vetted by peer reviewed by other researchers. And not that those that process isn't ever without flaws. It still keeps out most of the crankery. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. ufology, you could have very serious work, which is what I believe your work to be and what it sounds like Leslie Keene has done and, and maybe someone like Timothy Good um, has done. But then you've got all this other stuff, which I think can really just for people just, uh, you know, though the, they might 
they might at some point talk about stuff that is credible, but then they just go off in la la land talking about kind of stuff that's just crazy. That there's no there's no basis for it, right? It's just right. Right, speculation upon speculation. In which case, for you, it makes your job harder because people hear that and they're like that is just ridiculous. Right? Well, I I have a big problem, yes, with uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of people out there who uh, they have a very low standard of what constitutes truth or at least what even constitutes something that they can repeat publicly. Um, look, this is this phenomenon, I am personally of the opinion, is, is probably a lot stranger than any of us realizes. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with speculating even, even kind of wildly at times as long as you realize what you're doing. Um, you know, people like Leslie, I have a lot of respect for her, and I consider her a good friend. Uh, I don't yet have her book. In fact, I, I need to get it. Uh, but, yeah, her work, I think, is very serious, and um, there are other people out there who are trying to have high standards. And then there are other people who just, uh, you know, it's not like you have to pass some kind of academic peer review. And so anyone can throw themselves in there, and that, that's, a, a, that's a double-edged sword. It's not all down. It's not all of a downside uh, to have that because, frankly, uh, one of the things that peer review, I think, traditionally has done is it's uh, – yes, it, it forces excess uh, – or a high degree of caution, but it can, ex it can enforce an excessive degree of caution. Um, it often takes a very, very long time for those so-called peers to uh, you know, have the younger generation take over and really um, – in other words, look, the, the whole idea of peer review, think of uh, something like the Supreme Court. That's maybe uh, legally probably our highest uh, peer review you know, group in the nation. And the Supreme Court has made a lot of bonehead decisions in the course of its history, uh, from the Dred Scott decision in the 1850s right on through. A lot of others are really stupid decisions. So just because you have a, um, a group of s uh, supposedly highly qualified experts doesn't mean that they're not bound in some way by an ossified belief system. And I do think that a lot of the academic community, unfortunately, is, is almost uh, incapable at this point of, of dealing with UFOs. And the reason is, if, if you were a graduate student in, say, a, a department of political science or history or some science department, and you wanted to study UFOs, ask yourself, how would you go about doing it? You'd have to find an advisor who would be willing to take you under his or her wing. And A, first of all, you wouldn't find someone because it, they'd be afraid of the topic. And B, you wouldn't because there's no one qualified to do it because no one studied it. And so it's a self-perpetuating type of system. So that the academic world is actually, I feel, unable and almost, I would say, unqualified to, uh, to review the UFO topic, at least right now, because none of them really know anything about it. Well, and it also sounds like there's been so much disinformation put out by the government at different times. Um, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about the, you know, the disinformation that's been put out by the CIA at different times. Yeah. And, and, and this is stuff that's been uncovered in, um, in congressional testimony and like the church proceedings. So this isn't like me just saying this. This is like go read about the church proceedings and stuff that CIA yeah, and other right. intelligence agencies have – admitted that they've misled the public in a number of ways. So my question to you is, okay, we get all this information, disinformation from, you know, branches of the government, where, you know, and, you know, us as citizens, I mean, how, what does that do to us as a culture? And how does that, how do we even know what's true? I mean, it becomes like an epistemological crisis. How it, do I know does. what's true is true? I, it's just, it's, uh, it's really... It, 
you know. It is difficult. Um, well, you have a lot of a lot of really interesting issues in, in that statement of yours, Jason. So let me just think. Uh, one of the things is that in in our academic world today, all right. And again, this is I don't think any anyone who is who's familiar with contemporary academics would have a difficult time understanding that you got a revolving door, at least at the upper ends of academia, between the national security world and the academic world. This happens all the time. You have a, a high-level national security position in some administration. You leave your job. You go get a job at uh, wherever, Harvard, Princeton, UCLA. John Yu, the guy who crafted the uh, Homeland Security, the, the USA Patriot Act, rather. Oh, the torture documents, okay. right? You know it. After he left the Bush administration, where did he go? He went off to Berkeley, where he got a nice cushy job teaching. This is what they do. So, in other words, it's... Uh, and in particular, the most prestigious national security, uh, excuse me, the most prestigious academic jobs, many of them are at these major institutions where there's a revolving door with Washington or the defense industry. So in other words, you've got at the very top uh, an elite of, of the whole academic world that is very much in with that. There, there's also been a number of very good academic studies that dealt with CIA penetration of America's Ivy League institutions. A very good book that I read years ago, one of the early ones, is called Cloak and Gown uh, by a gentleman recently deceased named Robin Winks, um, who talked about the CIA's penetration of Yale University as a case in point and really got into it and, and just showed, you know, how Yale was a, a, a CIA recruiting ground, but also how the professors at Yale, many of them were working, uh, I mean, out of a sense of patriotic duty with CIA. Uh, so this, this is an old story. And by the way, the same thing, exactly the same thing is, within, is within, with the world of media. Uh, over 30 years ago, Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame did a, a very excellent expose in Rolling Stone magazine dealing with the CIA's penetration of mainstream uh, a mainstream U.S. journalist and said that no less than 400 mainstream U.S. journalists have been on the CIA payroll during the Cold War, continuing. Uh, ask yourself what you could do if you had 400 mainstream journalists on your payroll. Uh, could you, I don't know if you could control the news completely, but could you influence spin? Could you influence editorial policy? Could you uh, have certain stories killed, maybe? Or could you throw cold water on certain stories that you didn't want out, and so on? Well, there's, a, there's, exactly a, there's a great quote. There's a great quote called, uh, it goes, the Central Intelligence Agency owns everyone of any significance in the major media. And that was William Colby, former director of CIA. Oh, wow, I didn't have that quote. That's a great one. Yeah, well, and by uh, the way, Colby, a guy whose life ended very mysteriously as well. Can I just ask a question here? Um, yeah. We're talking about modern Oh, Justin, day you're still here? I <laughs> thought... <laughs> okay. I, I, by the way, Justin, I apologize that I'm hogging all the time. Uh, I'll make it up to you in another interview. Uh, Justin was very gracious to sort of give me the floor because he knew I was very excited about this interview. So, but go uh, on. Justin. Okay, so we're, we're talking about modern day evidence of ET, um, well, within the past 60 years or so. But a growing number of authors propose that there's evidence of ET in the archaeological record, even thousands of years old. What's your thoughts on that side of things? I think it's very interesting. Um, when I commenced my own study of the UFO phenomenon, I really intentionally restricted myself to the modern era uh, in a lot of ways because it's, it's, it's easier. Uh, there's documents. There's a kind of a paper trail. There's people you can talk to and so on. Uh, whereas the archaeological record is uh, a lot more nebulous. It's a lot more open to interpretation. Uh, nonetheless, I, I have to say... Uh, having had a lot of time to go into it now myself, um, 
I think that there's reason to, at least to speculate that whoever they are, they've been here a very long time, and they may have been here for thousands of years. Uh, certainly, I do think that there are some some interesting anomalies, in my own opinion, about our own ancient history that have not been explained adequately to me. I would count among them uh, the, the technical aspects of the Great Pyramid at Giza. I mean, I've read what uh, the Egyptologists say about it. Um, I just don't find it persuasive that an uh, object of that vast magnitude, of that precision of construction. Uh, and when you really get into all of the uh, the mathematics and the engineering difficulties that were involved in constructing that pyramid. I'm talking about the internal chambers as well as just the whole thing. To say nothing of the fact that originally that thing was was uh, covered in beautiful limestone and probably capped by a gold uh, cap piece at the top. I mean, an unbelievably extraordinary. The fact that it's almost exactly perfect to the cardinal points uh, and much, much more. Uh, indicates to me that there is a level of knowledge and capabilities that existed that we were actually unable physically to match until the 20th century if we were even able to match it. So what does that tell me about these these people? Well, it tells me that there's something very odd there that, that uh, involved a level of knowledge in science and technology that may not have been explained. So I consider that an, an anomaly of our past. And whether that's evidence of ET or not, I, I don't know, but I think maybe. Uh, and there's a number of other very interesting things. You look at, um, in Peru, everyone's heard of the, the plains of Nazca. But what a lot of people don't realize, this came out recently in the History Channel series called Ancient Aliens, uh, which featured a very good friend of mine, Giorgio Sucalis, uh, who pointed out, when you look at <clears throat> one, of, one of those mountains, it, it's very, very clear that, that one of them was just shaved off perfectly level for a very, very long period of time at the top. So someone terraformed the top of this. I don't see any other explanation. It's totally flat amid all of these other mountains. Um, it's very odd looking. Who did that? Um, you know, so to answer your question, short answer is yes, I think that there's a lot going on there, and one day I may want to write a book about that. Interesting. Um, I, I'd like to maybe have ask if you could address the whole disclosure movement, and and in particular, one person who who I find um, particularly sort of convincing, I guess, is um, and that's astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Um, and I guess I guess the short the short information on him is um, he was the lunar module pilot for Apollo 14. Um, he spent nine hours working on the lunar surface, and um, and uh, he was the uh, sixth person sixth person to walk on the moon. Mm -hmm, right. So he has come forward as part of what's what's termed the disclosure movement, which is pressuring um, I guess the government to. To open up about what's really been what it really knows and what's really going on. Could you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that, please? Yeah, that's right. Actually, I was very lucky. Ed, Edgar uh, just wrote back to me today. I'd sent him an email request to ask him if he would yet again endorse my next book that's <laughs> coming out, and uh, <clears throat> he he said that he probably would. Too, or at least he would be happy to read it. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had the chance, actually, to speak with him a number of times personally myself, and it's absolutely true that Edgar Mitchell, um, look, when you're a moonwalking astronaut, ask yourself, who's not going to want to be your friend? So he, he really has the ability to talk to pretty much anyone in the uh, military and national security community he wants to, and plus the fact that he's a, a senior Navy officer anyway. He comes and out he has of a PhD in uh, aerospace engineering from MIT as well, right? 
That is correct, yeah. So he's no dummy, right? No, no, and in fact, he's, he's I mean, as sharp as ever, in my opinion. He's very, very extremely intelligent and, and really a soft-spoken, well-spoken man. Um, so what he has said, I, I actually, uh, I've talked with him a lot about this in, in conversation and email, and I've traced his own public statements to the effect, starting in, I think, 1997 is the first statement that I've ever heard him make where he says that he had very high-level connections who informed him of, of deep black or deeply secret programs to study alien technology and bodies. Edgar Mitchell has said this. And what's amazing to me is that the mainstream media has really never followed up on this. Uh, in any in any true substantial way. I mean, look, you got to ask yourself: Is he lying? Is he senile? Is he crazy? You know, whatever. Okay, those are fair questions to ask. Of course, he isn't in any of those. In my, he's certainly not crazy, and he's not senile, and I think he's truthful. Um, but where is the follow-up? Where's NBC? He has said this a number of times. I spoke with him one-on-one -on -one back in 2004, and he stated to me that yes, once again, there were two individuals that he spoke to on conditions of anonymity, who said uh, that they had confirmation of, a, of deep black programs to study ET technology and bodies. And he wouldn't tell me who they were. Just two years ago, two or three years ago, I wrote to him again. And uh, this is when I was finishing up the second volume of my history, and I was trying to follow up on this lead. And, and I said, look, this is in an email. Um, I said, look, you've, you've said this many times, that you've had these connections, and I'm not trying to have you give them up uh, I realize that they came to you in confidence, but I said, look, I'm trying to write about this, and can you maybe throw me a bone and give me something that I can work with that will point me in a direction that's maybe moving the ball a little bit further down the field, so to speak. That's more or less what I said to him. And he wrote back and said, look, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I have no problem. I respect what you're doing, but you must understand, he said, the people who came to me did so at great risk professionally, personally, and then he said, and this is, I have got his email, at risk to their families. Right. Uh, he said, they came to me and they did so with the expectation that it was utterly, absolutely anonymous and I cannot and I will not break that confidence until maybe after they're gone. Are, are, you, are you at risk personally? I don't know. I mean, I, I have, I'm sure, in fact, I I have personal confirmation that I've been observed in some manner or another. Uh, I don't know if it's in a hostile way or in, an, in a non-hostile way. Certainly, there are a number of people in the intelligence field who've come to me, and some of these are, a couple of them are famous and some are not, but they've said, look, I really love what you're doing. Um, the intelligence community is far from monolithic, that's for sure, as, as the Washington Post is pointing out. It's sprawling, and it's got multiple agendas. Um, and I think all ruling elites also have factions. Look, you go back to ancient Rome 2,000 years ago, and you're at Caesar and Pompey. Today, if there's a, a UFO control group, and I believe there is, certainly I, I think that they have factions also. Uh, they may not all agree. Uh, there certainly have been people who've come to me quietly, privately, who have supported what I do. Uh, I have, for two years, from 04 to 06, I used to get stopped on every single flight that I made. Uh, they would let me fly, but they would... So you were on the no-fly list. Stop. I was on a piss-him-off list. That's what I would yeah. call it. In the sense that I would get... Sorry. 
Uh, we I'm can't mess with your life list, so be, watch your step. Right. They would always let me fly. They would always delay me by 15 to 20 minutes while they were making phone calls, checking my name. And I thought, you know, what is this? And try getting an answer from TSA or Homeland Security. Good luck. Uh, I never got an answer. I made a couple of phone calls and just gave up. Well, Teddy Kennedy, I think, was even on the no-fly list, right? There's a couple other uh, Congress people that were on the no-fly list and they couldn't get themselves. Yeah, they were. It was on 60 Minutes. I watched the yeah, 60 Minutes. Right. They're talking about how ridiculous it was. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, right, I was in, I was in good company, and and I wasn't on a no-fly, so I I should be clear about that. But I was on some kind of my name was flagged in some way, and I I've had a number of occasions my luggage sent to Dulles and opened, and that I I know for sure. So, uh, you know, someone was interested in my. In my stuff. <laughs> so, so Richard, I know I know we're kind of reaching the end of our time, but I got a, two more questions for you. Are sure. we running out of time, or could I could I ask these? No, we're good. You okay, Justin? I'll go on then. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, I, I like I like I said. Uh, I've said I think I've said this in the show. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. So I, I, I got I got a lot of questions. You're like a little kid in a candy store. I am. I it's just, that's my favorite part about this podcast that you think of someone. You no, know, would be awesome to talk to, and then here we are talking to him. I mean, it's it's it's, it's great. It's really well, cool. ask the question then. All right, all right. Enough with the wind up. Okay. Get on with it then, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, you know, there's there's the whole thing about Majestic Twelve, MJ Twelve, uh, Magic Twelve, which is uh, an interesting concept. And I wonder if you could uh, explain what what that is. What's yeah. the theory behind it? What evidence is there that there's a Magic Twelve group? Sure, I'll do my best. Uh, back in the uh, early 1980s, uh, there were a number of documents that leaked without, without uh, a proper provenance. Like, you know, if you're finding a document in the U.S. National Archives, that's got a, a provenance. So you can, you know, check the, the record and file number and so forth. Uh, these were documents that were leaked to researchers who were involved in the UFO uh, field at that time. Um, and they looked kind of interesting, and they looked like they might be real, and they uh, described an organization authorized by President Harry Truman in, in 1947 called MJ-12, otherwise known as Majestic-12. Um, these documents were absolutely uh, you know, dynamite at the time that they were um, received uh, because they described in detail the, the crash retrieval of UFOs at, at Roswell and elsewhere. Um, and and they were written i you know i think it's fair to say in a fairly sophisticated way they looked fairly sophisticated the researchers held on to these documents for a couple of years they actually sat on them and and were trying to confirm them one way or the other wouldn't reveal them and then uh the intelligence group that mailed mailed them originally contacted in fact timothy good uh the british researcher that i mentioned in the beginning of this this uh interview and wanted him to publish those documents uh, because the American guys that they used were, were taking their, their sweet time. And Tim Good, in fact, agreed to publish those documents. Uh, I spoke to Tim Good about this, in fact. I said, who sent you the damn documents? Uh, you've always been very cagey about it. And, and he uh, finally admitted that it was uh, the group related to the uh, U.S. intelligence officer named Richard Doty. Now, a lot of people listening to this podcast probably may not know that name, but uh, UFO people do know the name Richard Doty. He was an intelligence officer out of Kirtland Air Force Base in the 70s and 80s and was very much involved in putting disinformation into the UFO field. He was explicitly tasked with doing that, and he, he admitted that. He said that explicitly to researchers, including myself. 
Now, why would he be tasked with doing that? That's a really good question. And, and does that mean MJ-12 is fake? Um, first of all, I don't think that that means MJ-12 is fake. Uh, my, my attitude about good disinformation is that it, it's not 100% hoax. It can't be. What good disinformation is, is true information that's got things put in there that discredit it, that therefore make it uh, kind of disabled for, for use by the general, you know, by, by people. Right. So you don't really know what's true. I think that's actually the truth. What was happening, and the reason I feel, this is my argument in, in one of my volumes, the reason that Doty became charged with doing that is that there was a real threat to UFO secrecy at that time in the late 1970s, and it was sort of a two-pronged threat to the secrecy. One uh, was in the form of, as I mentioned earlier, the Freedom of Information Act, uh, as documents increasingly were being, sh like, shaking the tree of the U.S. government, and a lot of these documents were coming out, and, and some of them were really good and really interested. And so that was one threat. You know, it, it's it's easy to forget this, but when you've got a government agency that year after year after year says, no, we have nothing to pertaining to UFOs, and then suddenly you can show them like 25 really good documents saying, these originate from your agency about UFOs, uh, that's not a good situation for them to be in. So that's one threat. And the other threat to the secrecy, the other prong, were the increasing number of stories by military people to researchers about retrieval of crashed UFOs or the uh, being in the same room as, you know, having dead alien bodies in a room at Wright-Patterson Air, Air Force Base and so forth. These stories, this is all during the late 70s, during the Carter years, started to come out to, to various UFO researchers. Um, now, you know, those types of stories are never confirmable without an official government, you know, recognition. But some of them were very detailed, and, and they certainly seemed like they could be true. And so you've got these two things happening um, at the same time. And so it, my thesis about this is that it was an explicit task of the U.S. intelligence community to sort of disable that to the extent possible by stirring up the pot, throwing a certain amount of garbage out in there, uh, having researchers argue forever and ever amen over the authenticity or not of various documents that have been leaked out. And it, in a sense, it really worked. Um, you know, I, I think that there is a majestic type of organization out there. I definitely do, yeah. So now, and I guess one of the the people on the list of in, in, that were supposedly in Majestic Twelve Corner documents, like Vanover Bush, right? He's a yeah, scientist. Right. I think people will know. He um, he was also he had ideas. I think that were sort of what spurred some of the concepts for the internet. Eventually, ARPANET. That's back exactly in the day, right. He, he he developed the idea of a hyperlink. Vanover right. Bush was listed as MJ one. He was actually the the first number there, um, and he was the number one science advisor to to President Roosevelt and President Truman. And there were like some of the other scientists, like Oppenheimer might have been on there. Uh, John, Von, I don't know who were some of the other people on the list. That yeah, Oppenheimer was not on the on the list, uh, nor was John von Neumann. But uh, a lot of other, um, I'm remembering off the top of my head, Detlef Bronk, who was a, a very top level, I think, biologist, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Donald Menzel was probably the big surprise. He was the top astronomer at Harvard University and a major UFO debunker. He wrote all these books trashing the whole reality of UFOs and ascribing them all to illusions and hoaxes and so on. But Menzel was listed as an MJ-12 member. Uh, a number of military people, uh, Roscoe Helen Carter, who was the first director of the CIA, was listed on, and uh, James Forrestal, former Secretary of Defense, was listed um, 
uh, a number of other top-level military people. And, and um, so that was the MJ-12 group. Um, wasn't Helicar, wasn't he one on the board or he run NICAP, which was, which was one of the first well, major UFO yeah, investigative absolutely. groups or something? Absolutely. This is one of the civilian. It was a civilian organization, right? People correct. outside well, the military intelligence agency trying to get the bottom of what's been going on. It was civilian, but it was dominated by Navy men, and also, as we we learned in retrospect, uh, infiltrated by a lot of CIA guys. So NICAP was uh, a civilian organization. Yes, absolutely. But it was um, it was very very closely affiliated with Navy, in my opinion. Helen Cotter, who was not just director of CIA, but he was a Navy man. He was an admiral, first and foremost. Uh, was an original board member, or in, let's say an early board member of NICAP. So, and he was that for five years. And you might have to ask, you know, you know where are the uh, CIA historians here? What was the first director of the CIA doing on the board of the nation's leading UFO civilian organization, which was, by the way... Uh, dedicated to ending UFO secrecy. And in fact, NICAP's big thing during the 50s and early 60s was to get congressional hearings on UFOs. And here's Hillencotter on the board. It's one of these questions that uh, the mainstream conventional historians, it's the question they just never want to ask. Right. Okay, so I'm going to ask my last question, I guess, because we're, we're, we're over time and um, I'm sure you have a life to get back to, <laughs> is specifically about... Um, your life as a, as a writer, I mean, you know, our show is about, I guess one of the ongoing themes about our show, of our show is of entrepreneurships, of doing a startup, starting something, creating ah, something. And great. so you come out of grad school, you're working on your PhD, and you decide to start researching UFOs. So how does that work as sort of, uh, I don't know, a, a career? I mean, how do you make a living? Is it through speaking fees? Is it book sales? Is it TV appearances? I mean, how did it, how did it start out? Because I'm sure there's yeah. this huge period of time where you start writing a book and you're not making any income. I mean, how do you support yourself? How did this whole thing work out? Well, as it is now, I, I, uh, I'm able actually more or less to support myself and my family because I publish my own books. And I think that's really the thing that allows me. Speaking of entrepreneurship, I'm really a firm believer in that. So the, I've created a company called Keyhole Publishing Company, and I sell my books that way. Um, because really, as I've gone both ways as a published author. I've had a publisher take my book, and, and you basically get reamed and robbed. Uh, I'm not just speaking of my publisher. It's all of them. They're all that way. Right. They can't help it. So it's just, it's the same them. as sort of the music industry, right? I mean, it just... Yeah, totally. And, and um, so as a, as a published author, that's how I do it. And I'm able to survive, and I'm not wealthy by any stretch. For most of the period of time, though, when I was doing UFOs, I was not supporting myself with income derived from UFOs. I was a private business writer, though, and I still do this. I have uh, a lot of work on contract with the state of New York, where I happen to live, um, where I um, help people. I mean, this is totally unrelated to UFOs. I would help people with disabilities obtain employment, and I would do uh, resume writing for those people, get paid mm -hmm. by the state of New York for that, and also do various types of job coaching. I've also done professional business writing for a whole range of businesses and individuals, and I've done... I've found a niche for being a great professional resume writer. I did the resume, in fact, of my city's current mayor, uh, Mayor Bob Duffy. I did his resume years ago. Oh, wow. So people come to me because they know I can sit down with them and um, talk to them about their career and make them look great uh, within the boundaries of truth. 
so I've had a lot of one-on-one -on -one with people over the years, thousands of people I've met with. And so for a lot of years, uh, I ran my own life just doing that, supporting myself and my family that way, while writing uh, and researching the UFO phenomenon on the side. It's at the point now, though, where really the, the research that I do is absolutely, it's been full-time for a number of years. And uh, the, the other business writing, I still keep. I don't want to ever let that go. And it kind of keeps me grounded in, in this reality. Right. So I, um, I keep doing that as well. In fact, I, I met with a gentleman earlier today in my office uh, for that kind of thing. Now, are you, are you, oh, sure, go on, Justin. I was just going to say, I, I've got a wrap-up question. But if you've, sure. if you've still got more to say, you should say I, it now. I was just going to ask one last question about that. Um, so are, when you do these conferences, are, is that something that makes that's an income for you at all? Or is that purely... You know, it's it's minimal. They pay you. Usually, you'll get some kind of honorarium to speak somewhere. It's usually a couple hundred bucks. It's not a lot, really. Uh, the the good thing is that I'll get flown out there, so they'll pay for my airfare, and they'll give me a little little bit of money, and um, I have the opportunity to sell books. So the conferences vary tremendously. I've gone to conferences where I really didn't make anything. It looking back, and others where it was kind of nice. It was a good weekend, and I made a few dollars. So. Um, my attitude is if someone's going to fly me out to be somewhere, I'm, I'm inclined to say yes because I actually believe in, in, in getting the word out, getting my message out to people. Um, and if, if you know, it, 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 you, can't make, you can't make a living, you cannot make a living doing the conferences, but you can at least do the conferences so that it's, it's not a loss of income. Now, does the writing books, I mean, the, you're publishing your own books. Do you have any advice for anybody about if they want to write a book and, and self-publish, you know, who they should use or what they should do? Oh, God, we could do two hours on that. I, yeah, I think I about that all the time. That's a big question. Um, I, I mean, I, as much as a historian as I am, and that is my professional training, I, I'm every bit as much as a, a, a writer. Um, to me, writing is a very serious thing, and I love writing it, I, and I hate it, too. I love it and hate it. Being, being a writer is like being thrown into a, a, on a mat by a sumo wrestler, and you just throw each other around, and you finally pin that sucker to the ground, and you make it behave. That's every single book I've ever written is like that. Uh, here's what I would tell anyone, though. All right, step one is either on your computer screen or on a piece of paper, you map out your plan. Because here's a way to fail. great way to fail as a writer. You get all of your enthusiasm, all your energy, and you take your little machete and run off into the jungle, hacking away at the jungle. You may hack away a lot, but at a certain point, I guarantee you, you're going to be tired. You're going to turn around. You're going to look around and say, where the hell am I? Because your whole project's got no organization. So step one is you map out your table of contents. Okay, Map out your themes. You have to do this. And then you take each one of those and you break it down to the extent possible. All right, You're invariably going to change your plan more than once, but at least what you will have is a game plan. So that, and then you, you take small steps, each little thing at a time, and you work your way through it. In other words, it, it requires you thinking through your process. The other thing as a writer that you've got to do is remember who you're writing to and speak to them intelligently on that level. Um, and then the other thing as an editor of your own writing, and this is absolutely critical, is you've got to be cold-blooded with what you write. You cannot get emotionally attached. No matter how much you sweat it over a paragraph, over a page, over a series of pages, if on reflection you look at it and it doesn't fit, it has to go out. You've got to get your word count down. I'm a fanatic about word counts. In other words, look, if you have a choice of saying something in five words or in ten words, 
You got, and the meaning is the same. You got to pick five every single time, every single time. Because the reader's attention is limited, the reader's time is limited, the reader's interest is limited. It is your obligation as a writer to get to the point, and I can guarantee you, if you say it in fewer words, you're going to find a way to say it in a more vivid, original, dynamic way anyway. Given how much information your books have, that's incredible because your books are chock-a-block full of information and you've been cutting it down that much. That's right. I, you, you, what, what I find is on any given chapter, I, I'll always start every chapter off with a standard word count, whatever that is, and I try to get it down literally 25 to 30 percent. And that may not seem like a lot, but let me tell you, it's a lot. Uh, you're paring it to the bone, but what you find is at the end of that process, you have a, uh, something that really can shine if you, if you do it right. Um, as far as publishing... I would encourage people to consider publishing their own work. Um, you can create a website. You, you know, getting set up on Amazon is not that hard. There's, if you are prepared to do your own fulfillment, your own shipping, which I do, uh, you can keep most of your profit, and, um, and you, you know, you're in control of your destiny. It's the way to do it. Let's, it, just, it sounds like everything that Richard just said could be applied to writing software and doing right. it. You know, everything. It's, just, it's interesting. You could just replace writing, you know, with writing code <laughs> or, right. you know, cool. speaking to your authors, right. creating user interface. This is all the same thinking, is about, which is a lot of stuff that we spend time talking about. Well, so, well that's uh, great. It's all, about, it's all about clarity of your message and clarity of your writing your code. It's got to be the same thing. That's right. You want okay, Justin. Code. My, my wrap-up question, yeah? Right. I want to ask this on behalf of all texting listeners. Richard Dolan, do aliens exist? Yes, I believe that they do. Um, I can't say that I know that they do. I believe that they do. I believe not only that they exist, but that they're here, finding us to be of great interest to them. Well, thank you. Thank you for that candid answer. Well, Jason, do you want to close off the show? Yeah, now? well, Richard, thank you so much for... Uh Great to come on the show and for allowing us to keep you way over time. Yeah, <laughs> really thank appreciate you so it. Much. It's this been was a lot pleasure. Yeah. I enjoyed it immensely. Well, we really, I, I think I can speak for both of us. We really enjoyed meeting you. And yeah. uh, I hope maybe at some point we can get you on again and ask you some more, uh, maybe get into some of these topics a little deeper if, uh, if you have time. Yeah, by all means. I, I would encourage you uh, to, uh, and your listeners to visit my website, which is keyholepublishing.com. Um, I will be having a new book coming out in a few months with a really cool co-author, and we're calling that book A.D. After Disclosure. That doesn't mean I'm predicting disclosure is imminent, although I think eventually it will happen, but I describe it as a, as a what if. Um, what would happen in our world if UFO secrecy ended? And it has turned out to be a really creative, really cool book cool great that's excellent all right that's a wrap we're out <laughs> <laughs>